0: have you turn in your Bibles to Philippians this morning, Philippians chapter 4. There is joy in being content. There's joy in being content. To be thankful means to be content with what we have. Yet as one man has said, contentment has been praised more and practiced less than any other condition of life. Is that right? I mean, if we compare our nation's prosperity with any other in the world, we find that we are among the most blessed, and yet at the same time, we are also the most unhappy, the most disillusioned and dissatisfied people around. That is a thought I believe we all must deal with seriously because inevitably we find ourselves slipping into this trap that enough is never enough. I'd like you to think for a brief moment on some words that were uttered in the first century AD. They are not words of a theologian, nor are they the utterances of a scholar. They were not even spoken from the mouth of a Christian. In fact, they were spoken by someone who never wrote a book. And ironically, the man who delivered these words was born a slave. His name was Epictetus, a Greek slave turned Stoic philosopher. And somehow he stumbled upon an idea that is very biblical and very relevant to the 21st century. If you have an ear to hear, listen attentively to his words. He said, he is a wise man who does not grieve for the things which he has not, but rejoices for those which he has Wouldn't you agree that wisdom of that nature is worth embracing? Epictetus' statement can be summarized in one single word, contentment. Contentment, in all likelihood, is a word which too many of us know little about and experience even less. In an article that appeared in the Baltimore Evening Sun, Elise Chisholm places her finger right on our sternums and gently applies a little bit of pressure to us. In an article that she wrote entitled, Things Make Life Better, Not Best, she really gets to the heart of this idea of contentment or lack of it. She writes, It was at a cookout that I heard the talk. One young woman with two children said, I wish we could afford a bigger house. Or at least a new dining room, some new dining room furniture. Her friend with a two year old said, Yes, I know, we just got to get that new garage. Our house just has no storage, we're so overcrowded. And from then on, they all talked about what they wanted and what they didn't have. And I know their longing stems from the heart. I know that when you work hard and have children, you want return on your labors. I also remember when I was 25, I longed for a four-bedroom house. I had four children and a visiting mother. I never got the extra bedrooms. I understand the feeling for things. And yes, things can make your life better, but they don't always make it best. On the way home from the cookout, I got to thinking about a house I love so much. I've never been back to it since we moved away from that small western town, but even now it can make me tear up. When I see a picture of it, even in my mind's eye, a deep, hurtful nostalgia washes over me. I love that place, and I have lived many places. I am still homesick for that small house, our first, and one that was bulging with people usually. And I long for it more in the summer for some reason, maybe because it had large windows that brought the sunshine inside, The house was made of tacky asbestos siding and had an ugly carport that was full of bikes, broken lawnmowers, and kids' toys. The house was way too small. I live in a nice house now. It has air conditioning, garbage disposal, fireplace, flower beds. The children are grown and we are alone. We have what 30 and 40-year-old parents always long for, peace, We have matching dining room chairs now. But they're not filled with children every single day. I know what my trouble is. The house of 37 years ago is the house in which we started out. We were very crowded. And when my mother came to stay for a few months at a time, we were more crowded. We had no family room. We lived in our living room. The kids shared rooms and there was no privacy. But that old house had constant laughter, continuous loud music, the telephone ringing, coats thrown over chairs, cars parked outside, spaces were filled with the kids of all ages and we didn't even care. And for sure there were occasional spats, popcorn in an open peanut butter jar and cheap perfume from the girls' room mingled with weird lint fragrance of old clothes dryer that labored hard every day. She says, I wish I could tell young people who long for better houses that a new deck, another bathroom, a larger kitchen, they're not always the things that make a house a home. It's the loved ones inside who bring about the theater of happiness and keep the daily drama moving. Even the constant banging of the always off-the-track screen door is now a sweet memory. And today, I'm wondering if the yucca is in bloom in the scraggy backyard of that old house. But most of all, a shout after school at the front door, sometimes sullen, sometimes joyous, Mom, I'm home, brings back a yearning. That was living. That's what I think about most. Did you feel that bruise right there? If you're over 50, probably. This morning, the Lord, through this closing section of Paul's letter to the Philippian church, he speaks pointedly to an issue that I believe is not only important, but also extremely relevant to our lives. It's this issue of contentment, fulfillment, personal satisfaction, regardless of what you want to call it. Most of us spend our entire lives running hard after it. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once said, most men pursue pleasure with such breathless haste that they hurry right past it. And I'd like to replace that word pleasure with satisfaction or contentment. Because nothing is more descriptive of contemporary culture than that. We hurry right past it. Content and satisfied are two things that most of us are not and the world capitalizes on that. The cosmetics industry has made billions of dollars because we aren't satisfied with our looks. Fashion designers count on the fact that we're not happy with our clothes. Plastic surgeons thrive on our dissatisfaction with age. Cult leaders prey on people's disillusionment with their faith. Let's face it, most people are not satisfied I thought about that as the author of a book I was reading was hammering this point home to me. He said, satisfied? That's the thing that we're not. We're not satisfied. We push back from the Thanksgiving table and pat our round bellies. I'm satisfied, we declare, but look at us a few hours later. Back in the kitchen, picking the meat from the bone." We wake up after a good night's rest and we hop out of bed. We couldn't go back to sleep if someone paid us. We're satisfied for a while, but look at us a dozen or so hours later crawling back into the sheets. We take the vacation of a lifetime. For years we've planned it. For years we saved for it. And off we go. We satiate ourselves with sun, fun, and good food. But we're not even on the way home before we dread the end of the trip and we begin planning the next one. Is that right? We're not satisfied. As a child, we say, if only I were a teenager. And as a teen, we say, if only I were an adult. And as an adult, we say, if only I were married. And as a spouse, If I only had kids. And as a parent, if only my kids were grown up and out of here. (laughs) In an empty house, if only the kids would visit. And as a retiree in the rocking chair with stiff joints and fading sight, if only I were a child again. See, we're not satisfied. Contentment is a difficult virtue. Why? Because there's nothing on earth that can satisfy our deepest longing. We long to see God. The leaves of life are rustling with the rumor that we will, and we won't be satisfied until we do. We can't be satisfied, not because we're greedy, but because we're hungry. We're hungry for something not found on this earth. Only God can satisfy. And as the adage goes, many of us won't be content with our lot in life until our life is a whole lot more. But that's a fallacy. And sometimes it takes us a whole lifetime to learn it. You know, some of the most miserable people that I know have everything they could ever want in the world's eyes. Conversely, Some of the happiest people I know and the most enjoyable, by the way, to be around have what most of us would call absolutely nothing. Yet they have something that is far more valuable. Most thankful people I know find their contentment in Christ. They realize that in Christ they have enough. And that's the word for today. Enough. Enough. If indeed that's true, that contentment is the least practiced condition of life, then we need to turn that around, and I believe the man to help us to do that is the Apostle Paul. In fact, Paul wanted to leave the church in AD 61 with the same thing I want to leave you with today. An understanding that as Christians, we have more than enough to be content and thankful. But a thankful attitude just just doesn't flow out of nowhere. You see, it comes from a sustained spiritual contentment in Christ. True contentment stems from adequate resources. Look at Philippians chapter 4. Follow with me as I read from verses 10 on down. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In this chapter, Paul exposes us to a handful of more than adequate resources which blend together to color our attitude with true contentment and gratitude. Together, they spell enough. The first thing that I want to point out to you in this chapter is that true contentment comes when we start understanding the resource of God's sovereign providence God's sovereign providence, verse 10, verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Now, contrary to scientific hypothesis, life is not a series of random occurrences or a string of lucky events. It's a pattern of divine appointments. The providence of God, although often misunderstood, is the result of a purposeful, his purposeful, re- working in advance to arrange the circumstances in our lives to work for good according to his sovereign purposes. Is that right? You following with me? Paul was a man who knew about God's providence. That's how he could write a verse like Romans 8.28, one of the most quoted verses in the New Testament, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Paul's saying here in verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked the opportunity. Look down at verse 14. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with my, me and my affliction. And he talks about how they shared with him the gifts that he received. as He's he's using sacrificial offering language here in verse 18. But I've received everything in full. I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. He says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And he gives praise to God about the fact that they supplied his need. But it wasn't just them that he was thanking. He understood that God's providence came through them. Amen? That it was God that was doing it through them. You know, today, even within the ranks of the church, there is this thin stream of heresy which is slowly eroding this concept of God's providence and God's sovereignty. It's called open theism. Some of you may have heard about it. Some years ago, it was quite a controversial topic. Open theism says, basically, that God doesn't even know what's going to happen in the future. We make our own future by our own choices. I'm not going to get into all of that But the fact of the matter is is that Paul didn't buy into any of that stuff. His contentment stemmed from the sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of God's providence, from the fact that he knew that God was faithful to provide what he needed at the right time and in the right amount. And he let that knowledge permeate his mind, which created peace in his heart. An old gray-haired prophet once wrote, You, Lord, give true peace. You give peace to those who depend on you. You give peace to those who trust in you. Isaiah 26.3 And there's only one way to have the peace of Christ. You must have Christ himself. Just before Jesus went to the cross, Jesus said, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give isn't fragile like the peace the world gives. I've told you all this so that in me you will have peace of heart and mind. Here on earth, you will have many trials and many sorrows. But cheer up, I've overcome the world. Right now, some of you may have many worries and fears that shout at you from opposing directions. You're caught between the wonder of God and the worries of the world. You're struggling between faith and doubt following and forsaking. And the last thing you feel like doing is being thankful for what you have. Now is the time you need to let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Again, Paul's grasp on what true contentment is needs to be ours as well. Look at what he says again. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Remember, he's writing from prison. Again, his contentment stemmed from the sovereignty of God's providence, from the fact that he knew God was faithful to provide what he needed. This, verse 10, is Paul's thank you to the Philippians for their concern and the financial gift that they sent, that Epaphroditus delivered. Their concern for Paul flourished like new leaves on a tree in spring. He says, at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked the opportunity. That's an interesting statement there. They had always been concerned for Paul. But they lacked the opportunity to send him a gift. Maybe they were in financial straits themselves, or maybe they lacked a messenger. Nevertheless, God had it all under his sovereign plan and control, and Paul knew it. Because the opportunity arose and they sent Epaphroditus with the gift for Paul. At the proper time, God made the opportunity available and they responded. You know what? Today it's almost the opposite. They had concern but no opportunity. You know what we have today? We got plenty of opportunities but a whole lot less concern. Paul always viewed the gift of people that the people sent as God's hand of providence. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 for a moment. I'll show you that. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us, by the will of God. Notice that, by the will of God. He understood, Paul understood, that which caused Abraham to call God Jehovah-Jireh, which translates as the Lord will provide or see to it. How many of us really trust that God is going to provide for what we need at the right time and in the right amount, we do. I have an old journal in which the entry date of Wednesday, August nineteenth, nineteen eighty-seven, is a perfect example of this. It was just before my second year of Bible college, and we had no income to speak of. Times were pretty tough. The entry was very short and sweet. This is what it said. No check from human services today. Used $20 from our offering to cover groceries. Prayed for the Lord to supply $20 to put back in the offering again. Then a later entry that same day. At prayer meeting tonight, I received $20 from the church treasurer that was given this past Sunday for our support. Praise the Lord. God supplies at the right time in the right way. if We trust him. And looking back at some of those journal entries, they're a great source of contentment to me as a record of God's faithfulness. Seems like he sometimes pushes us right to the wire though, doesn't it? But he's always on time in his plan. True contentment comes when we start understanding the resource of God's sovereign providence. Secondly, Paul says here in Philippians 4 that true contentment is going to come when we stop underestimating the resource of God's sovereign power. And we underestimate it, don't we? We do all the time. This is the bulk of the passage right here from verses 11 through 13. Let's read it again. Not that I speak from want, Paul says, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And then one of the most famous verses in the Bible, right? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can see you mouthing the words along with me as I read it. I agree with Matt Chandler who says that most of us are not going to be able to say what Paul says here to the same capacity that he says it. At least not without some heavy-duty life experience. Because you usually don't learn that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And not many of us have gotten to that point. Paul had. See, there's this undeniable process involved here in verses 11 and 12. Paul says, I have learned. I have learned to be content with whatever circumstances I have. Paul emphasizes this fact that he had come to learn by experience this idea of contentment in Christ. He didn't just get up one morning and discover that he was now a newly converted content individual. He had to learn it by the experiences that he suffered. Have you ever studied just what Paul suffered? Did you ever study that? It's amazing. I'm going to give you a challenge. Take a week and go through the book of Acts after his conversion in Acts chapter 9, outlining every single high and every single low. That Paul experienced in his ministry. It's an incredible eye-opener. It's an incredible eye-opener. He goes from the mountaintop of incredible spiritual conversions to people vowing to kill him. In his ministry to Ephesus, all kinds of people came to Christ. He had amazingly fruitful ministry there. And by the end of that time in Ephesus, you know, he made some people mad. Some people that were making idols and he was ruining their business. And 40 people vowed that they would not eat another piece of food until they killed him. Now, it's one thing to have somebody say, I want to kill you. It's another thing to have 40 people vow never to eat until they annihilate you. You ever experienced that? That's a hard day. That's a hard day. So he goes from these mountaintop experiences to these extreme lows where people want to kill him. And this just happens over and over and over again in the book of Acts. It's not likely that the majority of us will swing between those two poles very often, is it? Yet that was Paul's entire life. Look at the page at a page in the catalog of Paul's experience as he runs it down for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 11. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 16. Again, I say, let no one think foolish, think me foolish, but if you do... Receive me even as foolish, so that I also may boast a little. What I am saying, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect, anyone else is bold. I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. And here he goes. Listen to this. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. i more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. Do you remember getting beaten Have you ever been beaten? I think that if I'd been beaten to a pulp, I'd remember it, right? I can't remember a single time in my life when I've been beaten. Paul says he's been beaten so many times he can't even put a number on it. Often in danger of death five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Paul learned by practice how to be content. And that's how we're going to learn. When you start to read about all that Paul experienced, which taught him how to be content in his circumstances, I don't think we'd ever quote Philippians 4.13 again from ourselves. (laughs) If we compare ourselves with him, obviously we don't have to. We can learn by the experiences that we suffer just as well. We learn by practice to rely on Christ. Our problem is that we want everything handed over to us on a silver platter. It's so comfortable here. And I, I'm the same as you. We want, I want to sidestep the suffering learning process. No one wants to suffer. But the Bible says that even Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. We need to learn like Jesus by practice. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It's the same word. See, contentment is not natural. Contentment doesn't happen overnight. It's a very tough process, sometimes a very painful one. It involves coming to terms with our own inadequacies, our own inabilities, our weaknesses, and realizing that as long as we are walking through life in a close relationship with Him, we will be exactly where he wants us to be. Usable, a significant part of his plan, serving his purposes. We can be content. That's what Paul meant when he wrote, I can do everything God asks me to do with the help of Christ who gives me the strength and the power. That's how Paul could testify to the Corinthian church. A whole new perspective following this litany of things we just read. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Paul says, Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses and persecutions and difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul said he learned to be content. He learned it. You know what that means? He's he's saying that he's learned to accept God's will no matter what. Just like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Thy will be done, not my will be done. So whether Paul's in need or having more than enough with a full belly or a growling stomach, whether his circumstances are great or they're in the pits, he can handle it, not on his own strength, but he can handle it through Christ. He knows that whatever God gives him is enough. And that's a word we we have a hard time with. The one which we have to come to learn to know as Paul did. The dictionary defines the word enough as meaning an adequate quantity, sufficient to meet a need or satisfy a desire. What really needs to be changed is our desire not necessarily our circumstance? In the 1600s, the great English historian and writer Thomas Fuller said this he said, Contentment consisteth not in adding more fuel, but in taking away some fire, not in multiplying wealth, but in subtracting men's desires. Your contentment will come and my contentment will come when we refuse to accept what the culture says that we need to be happy and to start learning how to be content in any circumstance that we find the Lord putting us in. And that's a hard one. It's a radical change of mind. There's an old Episcopal prayer that should preface our own daily devotions. It goes like this. Give us minds always to be contented with our present condition. See, if we went into every day with that prayer in our minds, I think we'd be a little bit happier people. And then we could understand what Paul says and how he could say, I know how, in verse 12, to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. That in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. The only people who can be truly content in prosperity, the only people that can be content in prosperity are those who are content in poverty. Paul says, I've learned the secret. That word's an interesting word in the original language. It was a, it was a term used by the ancient mystery religions to refer to their inner secrets Their initiation, they've been initiated and instructed into the mysticism. And it's interesting, Paul uses that word because what he's saying is, I've learned the secret of being content, I've been initiated and instructed by the Spirit about what it means to be content. Only when the power of God reforms our lives can we truly be content, is what he's saying and there's this undeniable process involved but there's this ultimate principle involved as well and it's the one in Philippians 4:13 I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me read that passage again Paul says I don't speak from what I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances to get along with humble means to live in prosperity in any circumstance. I know what it means to be filled and what it means to be hungry. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You know, Philippians 4.13 is not about chasing your dreams. It's not. It's not about following your passion, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or accomplishing anything that you want with God's help. That's not what that verse means. It's a testimony of those who have Christ and have found Him supremely valuable, joyous, and satisfying. That's what it means. Matt Chandler says, is there a more misquoted verse in the Bible than Philippians 4.13? I don't think there is. I think people want to apply that to everything. A Christian businessman might say, I'm going to be a CEO. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This verse is an evidence that I can do whatever I want. Accomplish anything that I want. Now, can Christ do the miraculous? Absolutely he can. But this text isn't saying that you can be a major league baseball player through Christ. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying that if you're in the big leagues, then praise his name. And if you're too weak to even lift the jug to the team's water boy, praise his name. You can't take Philippians 4.13 and make it mean you can do anything you want. That's not the point. In context, he's saying, I've learned to be content when I've received everything I want. I learned to be content when I got nothing I wanted. I can do either one by the power of Christ. I know how to live in opulence, he says, and not sell out to it. I know how to live in poverty and not despair in it. Whether I'm in the penthouse, the jailhouse, or the outhouse, I've learned the secret, Paul says. And now I'm passing it all on to you. True contentment has nothing at all to do with circumstances, Paul says. Nothing at all to do with it. It stems from more than adequate resources that we find in Christ. True contentment rests in the fact that we continually and consistently have the ability to accept, accomplish, and accommodate anything that comes along because it is tuned to the deeper reality of the gospel and God's kingdom. J.B. Phillips translates this verse like this, I am ready for anything through the strength of the one who lives within me. And that's a much better version of that, I think. Really brings it out. Regardless of which translation you prefer, the truth is the exact same. We have more than adequate resources in Christ, don't we? We don't need another way to say it. We need open eyes to see it. In fact, that's what Paul prayed, that very prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 that our minds might be open to see his light, that we would know what the hope was that he called us to, how rich are the blessings of his promises to his people, and how very great his power is at work in those of us who believe. That this power working in us, Paul prayed, is the same as the mighty strength which he used when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies. You know what that means? That means we can endure the times of doubt. We can work out the marital problems. We can overcome our addictions, the poverty. We can put up with it. We can stay humble in prosperity. We can handle the physical illnesses and the hurting bones and the personal grief. And we can step out from under the circumstances because the source of our strength is not me, it's Him. And it's Christ who overcomes the world. Who overcame death. And who has the ultimate power over the enemy of our souls and the circumstances that every single one of us has to face. We all have a choice. We can live God's way or we can live our way. We can think that we can pull off this thing called life on our own and fail miserably or we can rest on the fact that God is saying to us very, very clearly, I am with you. That is all you need. My grace is sufficient for you and my power shows up best in weak people. True contentment doesn't come From acceptable circumstances, it flows from abundant resources, the ones we have in Christ. And it will come when we start understanding the resource of God's sovereign providence, when we stop underestimating the resource of God's sovereign power, and true contentment comes when we stop underrating the resource of God's sovereign promises. Look at verse 19 of Philippians 4. And my God, Paul says, will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Great promise, isn't it? That promise got me and my family through four years of Bible college, 26 years of ministry, and really it's what's going to get me through the next five minutes of this message. (laughs) It's what's getting people like Nancy Farrington through her terminal illness and what will get you through whatever it is that you're going through right now, four years from now, or 20 years from now, or in the next two minutes, because this is a timeless promise. And the supply never diminishes because you know why? It's based on God's resources, not ours. Look at it, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But be careful not to tie this promise strictly with financial or material blessing, as do most prosperity preachers. No, it must be linked with verse 13 and read in the context Of verses 11 and 12. As Frank Thalman observes, God supplies the need of his people by giving them the resources to cope with their hardships. That's what Paul's saying. In other words, whether it's physical or material or emotional or spiritual, God promises to fill that need to fill it out. It's a nautical term that Paul uses here. It actually describes a ship's sail being filled out by the wind. So when our lives are hanging limp and loose in the deadness and the emptiness of life, God promises to fill them with his empowering Holy Spirit and carry us through. That's an incredible promise. And the thing to note here is what the promise does not say. Again, he doesn't preach a blab it and grab it theology. Not name it and claim it. He's not advocating that God will supply all of our wants, but he will supply our needs. And I read some great words that summarize this well. They were written by a man named Paul Powell, who said, God is more concerned about our character than our comfort. His goal is not to pamper us physically, but to perfect us spiritually. And that's really the issue here, isn't it? It's the whole issue of Philippians. I mentioned it earlier, but have you ever noticed that many times those who are the closest to spiritual contentment so often are the farthest from physical comfort? Maybe it's because they realize that true joy is not rooted in physical circumstances, but in that spiritual relationship with Jesus who is our only anchor of hope. Joy in Christ, you know, is the glue that keeps our lives intact. And it stems from spiritual contentment in Christ. Flows from a heart trusting in God's providence, a life growing in God's power, and a mind resting on God's promises. And as he closes out this book, he gives you three more things about true contentment that need no elaboration, but I'll just list them for you. The fourth thing here is that true contentment comes when we start underscoring the resource of God's soul preeminence. Look at verse 20. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's all to God's glory. Every bit of it. The focus all gets turned back to the glory of God. God's soul preeminence. Fifthly, verse 21 and 22, that true contentment comes when we remember the resource of God's saintly people. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. What's he doing? He's pulling this whole community of faith together. He says these people, these saintly people, They bring contentment. Our community of faith contributes to our contentment in Christ. And then the last thing here in verse 23, that true contentment comes when we rest in the resource of God's sovereign grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, he closes. See, when you witness the reality of true contentment in Christ, it's an incredibly powerful picture we learn, said one author, contentment not primarily by learning coping skills or response strategies in times of difficulty and adopting ambivalence in times of comfort, but rather by learning just how all-surpassing good our gracious God really is. Paul's point here is not summarized in the learning of advice or set a set of helpful skills, his point is summed up in one thing. It's summed up in knowing God. Knowing God. If you just know God through his son, Jesus Christ, Paul says, have a sense of his depth of love and abundance of grace for you in Christ, you'll consequently find wealth appropriately unimpressive and suffering appropriately untroubling. Let me say that again. If you know God and have a sense of his depth of love for you and his abundance of grace for you in Christ, you'll consequently find wealth appropriately unimpressive and suffering appropriately untroubling. Circumstances don't matter. Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. The message of this book of Philippians, if you haven't gotten it yet, is that life lived for him. It's lived for him, to him, through him, with him, about him, and in him. That's where Paul goes. At the end of the book, that's where he started the book. This is what Paul says. He says, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. God is big enough, beautiful enough, strong enough, lovely enough, perfect enough, sustaining enough in any circumstance. Wherever you are, he is with you always. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you and with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this book of Philippians. What an astounding journey it's been to see your hand of joy woven all the way through the serious business of life. Even in the midst of prison, Paul could rejoice because he knew that you were adequate for anything that he encountered. Lord, would you please show us that, teach us that, And when we find ourselves in times of suffering and trial, help us to remember that we can deal with any of it through Christ who strengthens us. We pray it in his holy name, the name above all names, Jesus. Amen.